In today's episode, we share a conversation with lawyer Jen Taylor. Here's our conversation with her. You get a lot of prejudice for being a defense attorney. People are so, I think I just get people that are curious, that have a lot of like assumptions that they had made. Um, and and they just, so I've, I've had some really dumb questions asked of me all the time. I say dumb questions. Like you get the same, like, oh my God, how do you sleep at night? You know, like, <laughs> and my answer is always, I sleep great. Like <laughs> I love what I do. I'm proud of what I do, you mm-hmm. know? And, but I think for, for the most part, if you just like, just sit down and explain to them, you know, what you do and why it's important and, and why you care, then most people are really they, they end up being really interested. I mean, I have an interest or I don't do criminal defense anymore. I'm still an attorney, but I do something else now. Um, but I mean, it's an interesting job and people are generally interested in it. Um, do you, do you hear, like, I, I, I remember the first time I met Dave's, my, my husband's uh, family and there were jokes like, oh yeah, you, you help the bad guys get off. And I always just lean into it. I'm like, yeah, I do. And I love it. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I might as well be like a mafia boss. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it's, it is what it is. Most people oh, wow. are really willing to like, listen and understand why you love what you do so much. Oh, it's good to hear that you really like it and find it interesting, even though you don't do it anymore. But I was thinking yeah. about also, what's what's the, um, is it the same in court, like with prosecutors and judges? Do they have, you know, are you, do you consider each other colleagues or more like, adversarial or the enemy oh it's both um (laughs) i had a really i i I think i had a really good relationship with most of the prosecutors that i worked with whenever i was doing it um you know and that just kind of happens because i if you're in the same county over and over and over again i mean there's like i was in williamson county texas i was in travis county texas those are my two in hayes county texas so those are three they, they kind of line up on I-35. Um, and when you're there, you know, two or three times a week, every week, and you see each other mm. all the time, um, it's it's not going to be a productive relationship if you just, if, if you can't get along. And right. a lot of them, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm still Facebook friends with some of the prosecutors that I used to work with. Mm. Um you know, it's, it's, it's a really, I had, a, I was blessed to have a really good working relationship with most of them. Um, were there people I didn't like? Yes. But like, like with any professional <laughs> environment, there's always going to be people that you think are unreasonable or difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course the nature of our job is adversarial. I'm representing my client's interests. They're representing the state's interests. So that is our job and we're never going to agree on everything. And sometimes we're not going to be able to agree on stuff. And, and then when you, like, if you end up in trial against them or any hearing against them, I mean, your friendship has to stay out, you know, out of the hall. Right. right? It's, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, I will say I never wanted to be like close friends with any of them. I thought that that would, um, a, I thought it would kind of hurt my credibility with my clients. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I, I always kind of try to maintain like, you know, we can be nice with each other. I will be friends with you on social media. We Mm -hmm. can be cordial um, and polite and 
but we're not going to like go out for drinks. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to be friends. I am, you know, the, the, I am friends with prosecutors, but those are generally people that I knew in law school, mm-hmm. like people that I was otherwise friends with. And we just kind of like all kind of went into our different fields, but I, I always really tried to maintain that distance because I didn't want my client like I it's there's a really really difficult time getting your clients to trust you already mm-hmm. and I didn't want them to think that you know oh they're just hiring an arm of the state and they're not getting adequate representation mm-hmm. so that was always really important to me yeah I that's, guess that would complicate yeah, things. Have, yeah. yeah yeah absolutely I have heard from uh, people who during trial like had a really hard time because their defense attorney was very friendly with the prosecutor and they knew that it didn't necessarily mean anything in their case but it made them feel you know yeah and the things matter yes it matters you want your client to be able to feel comfortable with you and trust you that matters not just for them you to be able to represent them effectively but i mean being completely truthful it matters to protect yourself as well because clients will turn against you when you lose a trial or when they get a result that they didn't want. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that, that happens all the time. Um, and so you want to make sure that you're just doing everything that you can to protect yourself in the event that you have an unhappy client at the end of that relationship. Did you always want to go into law or, you know, what sparked your interest in going um, into law? When I was in undergraduate school, I actually started out as an engineering student. I really like math and science, and I still really like math and science. I really like working with expert witnesses. I really love it when my job gets to kind of cross over into scientific stuff. Um, But I kind of realized about a year and a half into law school that I did not want to be an engineer like that just wasn't I I started not to I mean not to offend any engineers that might be listening I just I started learning about what engineers do when I started meeting engineers and I was like I love my physics class but I don't want to be an engineer especially I was going to school in Beaumont and it was mostly oil refineries and I just didn't have any interest in going to work in the oil and gas industry. Um, not that that's the only thing an engineer can do, mm-hmm. but it just, I just didn't love it. And I wanted to do something that I loved. And so I, looking back, I probably could have and should have just stayed in the engineering program and went into law school. But at the time it was, uh, it was a more expensive program. It was, it took longer to graduate. And so I switched over to political science, uh, and with I think I was a history minor um, and just to finish school mm-hmm. and so that I could go into law school. Yeah. So did you, were you like, did it just spark your uh, interest more when you started law school? When you like- so I was in debate throughout high school. And as I got close to graduating, it was very much do I want to go the hard sciences STEM route or do I want to be a lawyer? Like those are really the only two things I ever considered in high school. Uh, And I took the STEM route and then changed my mind. And I was like, well, I guess I'm going to be a lawyer. Like nothing (laughs) else really, I I never really considered doing anything else. How come? What, what, what do you like about the law? Um, Well, 
it's interesting because before I went to law school, I knew nothing about the law. Like I had, you know, like all of the things you think being a lawyer is going to be and all of the things you think law school is going to be before you actually do it. You're wrong about most of those things. But it really came from debate. I really liked uh I liked go. I liked I liked the debate events. I liked being able to get up and and argue. Um, I liked doing the research. I liked being able to like really become an expert on one particular topic and and learn how to advocate for a certain position. Like those things, I really enjoyed, and I was really good at it in high school. Um, obviously, high school debate is not at all the same. Um, there are certain things, uh, I guess, that are the same, but. I, I don't know, like being in debate club, that's what we all were, you know, we were all interested in watching like whatever trial was happening at the time. I have always kind of been like a true crime nerd too. I think that had something to do with it. Mm -hmm. Although to be honest, initially, I didn't think I was going to be a criminal lawyer. Um, and even still, like I enjoy it. And one day I think I'll do it again, but I'm also happy doing like what I'm doing right now. Like, I don't think it was just, I wanted to work in criminal justice, but that definitely sparked that was part of what sparked my interest is I, I, I did like watching crime dramas. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was interested in watching you know, what was going on in trials. Like, those things have just always been interesting to me. How long were you practicing law? I graduated law school in 2016 and then took the bar that summer. Uh, my, life, uh, my, my anniversary date is November 4th. So just a couple of, days ago was my sixth year anniversary of getting oh, awesome. my license. That's so cool. So did you happy anniversary. Yeah. 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 <laughs> did you work in the uh, uh in the public defender's office or were you in a private practice or I was at a, a firm so I never did work for the public defender. Um I started out working for a judge and I did that for two years and then from there I my first practicing job because when you work for a judge you're just working in chambers uh doing research and stuff for the judge and then the first time I was actually working as like a practicing attorney that was like going to court was at my last job and it was a private firm we didn't take appointed cases I did a couple I personally did a couple of appointed cases but the firm as a whole like they took retained cases um in Travis County where I live uh doesn't have a public defender's office they do now they have like they have this thing that they've just started they're like trying to get one off the ground um but depending on where you live here uh some counties have a public defender's office some of them have a public defender's office that cover multiple counties where I live we just don't have one and so the way it works instead is people will kind of to put their name on an appointment list and when someone applies for an appointed attorney instead of just sending it to the public defender's office they just pull a name from the list and then you'll get that case and then the county will pay you um theoretically the county will pay you which is kind of <laughs> that's its own problem mm -hmm. <laughs> its own conversation would you oh. say that um so when i kind of misheard i think what exactly the phrasing was but you said that when you work for the chambers for the judge, you're like doing research. What exactly does that uh, entail? Of? Um, so it's pretty. So one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is appellate law. Um, appellate law. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 I prefer to work on appeals, anything post trial. Um, and in order to do that, it's 
really beneficial to work for an appellate judge first and to get that experience. And so there are in Texas, obviously we have the Supreme Court and we have the Court of Criminal Appeals. Those are our two highest courts. They're just split between civil and criminal cases. And then we have 14 what we call intermediate appellate courts. And they're just, that just divides the state up into really 13 districts, not 14 because Houston has two courts. Um, and it, if you lose that trial, whether it's civil or criminal, and you want to appeal, then that appeal is taken up uh, by an intermediate appellate court, whatever district that you live in. And if you're in, so in the criminal world, if you lose uh, your trial and you receive a conviction, you have one appeal by right. Uh, and it you get to appeal to the intermediate court. And then from there, if you lose, you can appeal again to, it would be the Court of Criminal Appeals if it's a criminal case, but it's discretionary. So they can, you have to kind of, you have to file what's called a petition for review and they have to decide whether or not they're going to review it. And if they do, then you can move on to merits briefing and then they will, they can take the case from there on the, out on the actual merits. Uh, but I worked at the 11th Court of Appeals, which is in Eastland, Texas, and it's an intermediate Court of Appeals. And I went there to get experience uh, with appellate work and it's it's called a clerkship it's something that a lot of, of attorneys want to do um you can also go do it for you can do it for federal courts offer it some district judges offer it i mean there's not every judge will offer it uh but the ones that do they'll send out their notices to law schools you know we're looking for a clerk it's usually temporary um you're often just going to work there for I was really only supposed to work there for a year I stayed an extra year um and you just you it's it's usually fresh out of law school attorneys that are working literally in chambers you're working you know you have an office right next to the judges you get people's appeals are coming in you're helping with um, you're reading briefs, you're doing legal research, you're writing up memos for the judge so that the judge, you know, you're, you're sitting in conference with the judge to, you know, discuss what we should do about these cases. It's obviously ultimately the judge's decision, but you're a huge part of making that decision. Hmm. And I drafted a lot of opinions, um, uh, they, that then get sent to the judge for his edits and approval and signature, um, that go out. I sat in on a lot of oral arguments, so yeah, I mean, it was, let us say, I wasn't a, I, I, I never really felt like an attorney while I was there. I was an attorney. Mm -hmm. um, but that's why I always say, like, well, my first my, my first job as a practicing attorney was when I went to Smith & Vinson, because mm -hmm. that's when I, I had clients, and um, I was actually advocating instead of just, you know, my client was the law, I guess, whenever I was working for the judge. But it's right. a really common thing for attorneys to do that um, later want to go work in uh, in a in appellate, you know, want to do appellate work. It's also really common for attorneys that want to try to get fancy, what we call big law jobs. Um, so some of them can be very competitive. Like, for example, if you want to go clerk for the Supreme Court, that's very competitive. Not that my position wasn't, um, but it's it's incredibly competitive to try to go work for some of these bigger courts. And I mean, and even at the U.S. Supreme Court, they have clerks. Um, they're highly competitive jobs. And I think that as a prerequisite, you first have to clerk for a another court, another federal court first before you can even apply. But some of the people that have clerked for U.S. Supreme Court judges have gone on to be Supreme Court judges themselves, have gone on to have really wow. um, very, you know, successful careers. And so it's 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 
a thing that some attorneys and some law schools kind of want to do to jumpstart their career. And I was one of those. I wanted to do it. And so I found a court that would take me and that's what I did. Just a follow up on the uh, when when uh, a person uh, appeals to the intermediate court, do they they have the right to one appeal, but do they have the right to counsel, like or they have to do the appeal themselves? Yes. Okay, yes. that's good. The right to counsel on your first appeal, yes. And is that the same uh, crossing off that list or? Is it the same? Yes. Uh, yeah. So it'll be based on where your county. So it's this. It's not the same list. It's two different lists, uh, because whenever you apply to be on the list, you have to tell them what all kinds of cases you can take. And so they have a whole like they'll have like you know here's the attorneys that we can give them misdemeanor DWIs. Here's the attorneys we can give felony cases. Here are the attorneys we can give capital cases. Here are the appellate attorneys that are willing to take appeals. But it's all the same in Travis County it was the same office that managed all of that. And it's it's by county. So if you're in Austin and you get convicted and you want to appeal It'll be the same Travis County office that gives you that appellate attorney if you want to apply for appointed counsel. Awesome. Yeah, and uh, very informative. Thank you. You answered like uh, all of my questions <laughs> on that. But I'm coming up with more. Because mm -hmm. I was uh, thinking about do you have like uh, some favorite uh, decisions that you really like or you know, in law, it's just because when when you listen to uh, the wrongful conviction podcasts that are out there, you learn about maybe and you know different kind of issues. And even me, I I'm not I don't know about law, and I'm not you know I don't have an education in law, but some of them are like sticking out to me because um, those decisions are there because something happened. And I find yeah. that very interesting, you know, both the history yeah. aspect and the whole, what, there really needs to be a rule for this. Uh, well, apparently something happened that you need to put it down in a ruling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was really the inspiration for doing In Defense of Liberty is when you have a landmark Supreme Court case that affects everybody and sometimes shifts the entire paradigm of, of how we practice criminal law that usually just starts with one person in their story um so along that vein my favorite is uh the Gideon versus Wainwright case because up until the 1960s when that case was handed down and I want to say it was 63 but I can't remember off the top of my head what year that case was handed down but until that time uh, the Sixth Amendment right to counsel was not what they call incorporated into the states, which means that each state had the ability to decide whether or not they wanted to grant their right to counsel and what that meant. And even um, and even looking at the Sixth Amendment as applied to, say, federal defendants, you might have a right to counsel, but it was a while before that meant you had a right to apply appointed counsel if you couldn't afford one oh. right and a lot of people since now it's just the norm that mm -hmm. you get counsel if you can't afford one I think for a lot of people it comes as a surprise that prior to Gideon that didn't mean that the state was going to give you one right. that just meant that if you wanted to go get one you had the right to do it 
But what became the problem is there are so many people that just can't afford that. Mm -hmm. And so what do you do if somebody wants counsel, but they, they don't have the funds to procure it? What does that mean that they have the right to counsel? Uh, and that was a really big unanswered question, as was, you know, at, at the time that all of these 1960s decisions were coming down, um, this was the era of the Warren court, and it was a very progressive court. And historically, they were really in this era of trying to incorporate all of our uh, Bill of Rights rights through the 14th Amendment to apply to states, meaning that state governments had to honor all of the Bill of Rights as well. And this was a process that kind of gradually took place throughout the 1960s. And so Gideon was a part of that, a part of incorporating this one was what incorporated the Sixth Amendment into, you know, to the states. But I also love it because, I mean, A, it's, it's if you've ever done appointed work, you're doing that because of the Gideon case. Mm-hmm. And the appointed work and pro bono work is some of the most rewarding work that you can do as an attorney. But the story behind it is one of my favorites. It was, it, it was this old guy who had a long criminal history, quite frankly, and he was convicted of, it was a misdemeanor. I don't remember what exactly they charged him with specifically, but what had happened was somebody had broken into a pool hall they broke the it was either like the jukebox machine or it was some machine they broke it and took all the quarters out and they left that was it that was the crime it was a really petty crime and he got picked up for it because the next morning he was down the road at a at another bar and the detective who knew him or police officer whoever they they knew him because he'd had run-ins with the police before they kind of suspected it was him. They went in there and he was paying for his drinks with this massive pile of quarters. And they were like, dude, where'd you get those quarters? And he he maintained forever that he was innocent of that crime. And there was even some evidence that it might have been somebody else. I think somebody had seen another car or another guy. And you have to forgive me. It's been a long time since I've looked at the details mm-hmm. of this case. But there was some evidence that somebody else could have been involved. Mm-hmm. But regardless, um, he defended himself at trial and had the foresight to actually get in front of the judge and say, I have a Sixth Amendment right to counsel being appointed. And I think where that came from was his experiences with the criminal justice system. In the past, he had been given appointed counsel. This was in Florida. And he had been given appointed counsel in the past. Mm. Uh, And the judge was like, well, for this kind of situation, you don't have that right. This is a really minor offense so you don't have the right to appointed counsel here i'm sorry and he was pissed um and he did the trial himself he cross-examined he actually did a fairly decent job as a pro se litigant he um i've read the transcript i mean i mean he wasn't he was no attorney obviously Mm -hmm. but he really tried like he he gave an opening statement he gave closing arguments he cross-examined all the witnesses Uh, he even called a couple of witnesses on his own i mean he he tried the case himself and he was convicted. And when he went to prison, he was so pissed that he continued 
handling all of his appeals himself. And the petition for uh, writ of certiorari to the U.S. Supreme Court to take his case was handwritten. And you can go find it. It's I'm pretty sure it's on. Uh, you can just Google it, and it's 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 on the internet. It's really easy to find. And it was just this guy, and he was. I mean, I don't remember how old he was. Was, but he was this elderly man sitting in prison just ruminating over how he felt that he had been done wrong over this petty offense and it ended up going all the way to the supreme court and they took the case and that was the seminal case he wow. did get appointed counsel once the supreme court took the case they appointed counsel for him the attorney that represented him was himself later a judge on the supreme court um, it's a really interesting case with a lot of really interesting characters. Uh, and if I would say go listen to the In Defense of Liberty episode, but I take it down. So you'll just have to wait till they put it back up. It's one of my favorite episodes because it's a really, really cool story. I listen because... to it. It really is. It really is a cool story. You need to put it back this up. Has the stubbornness <laughs> to just not give up. Right. Now everybody has the right to counsel if they can't afford to retain their own attorney. Thanks to That's him. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Good one. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy too that it went from a gumball machine all the way to the Supreme Court. Like Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I don't recall how I think for a minor offense, he was given a pretty significant amount of time. It was off the top of my head, I wanna say five, six years, something like that. It was it was something that like I don't know if it was because of his criminal history or what the deal was, but I remember being a little surprised that it was that much time. Uh but he yeah, he sat in prison during out the pendency of his appeals. So it was it was more than just like a slap on the wrist. He got he got significant time for what would otherwise I would not have expected him to. It was because, yeah, that was what he was accused of, is stealing a handful of quarters. I wanted to ask, um, did you ever have a case where you felt like Rocky, like, yes, like you thought it was going to go bad and you really thought this was not going great, but um, it had turned around at the end? Uh, yes. Uh, I've had a couple like that. Mm -hmm. Probably one of the ones that shocked us the most was it was a DWI case. Um, and the guy that we were representing, if we're being quite frank, I don't know. I mean, he was he was quite obviously intoxicated. Like mm -hmm. it was not it wasn't that we told him over and over, like, dude, you're gonna pay us all of this money to take this to trial. Just and and then because covid the trial was delayed by like a year and a half it's like you mm -hmm. could have been done with your probation by now like what are you doing but i understood why he did what he did because he had a security license he was a security officer and he had had a prior mm -hmm. um dwi this was his second dwi uh from a few years before and once you get your second dwi can't uh he would have to turn in his security license and he wouldn't he we lose his job, and DWI um, is driving while intoxicated. While intoxicated, yeah. And we counseled him on like you know here are other jobs you might qualify for, and it's not a permanent thing. After mm -hmm. three five years or so, you'll be able to go apply for your license again. But that just wasn't acceptable to him. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I don't care if I lose. I have to do everything I can to save my job. And so we were like, okay. So we didn't accept any deals. We took the case to trial. And when I say 
this was a bad case. His BAC came back at like 0.2, like three times the legal limit. And don't get me wrong, we've won cases where the BAC has come back that high before because, you know, there's a whole other avenue to talk about, but the crime lapse are not perfect. Right. There are issues. And sometimes, sometimes there are problems. And if we can find those problems and we have to take a case to trial, I mean, we have won on those issues before. Wow. So that's not, it's like, okay, so that's not completely, um, you know, that doesn't completely cut you off from being able to win. Hmm. But generally when we win those cases where the, where we think the BAC is, is, is wrong, you have a, a dash cam video that shows how somebody looks. Mm-hmm. You can see how they're driving. You can see how they're interacting with the officer. And there is some argument to make there that, here are problems that we have found with the lab in this instance. Here's why maybe there's some reasonable doubt as to the validity of the lab results. And when you look at the video, it doesn't seem to match up with somebody that's three, four times the legal limit. We actually, um, that's a defense we use often uh, when we do DWI cases. Because uh, you'd be surprised how often lab issues happen. But in his case, it I mean, the video was horrible. It was, it was, it, it just... It was, it was bad. Um, so we're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to take this to trial. We're going to do the best we can. We're going to make the most out of every tiny little moment on that video where he does not sound intoxicated. Like, look right there. He answered your question correctly. Didn't he? Okay. Um, but it was not going well for us. Um, which was under, you know, which was not unexpected, mm-hmm. but then, um, something happened, which was actually, it was a small mis- it was a mistake but it was actually i think our mistake if we're being frank because some document had been entered into evidence that made reference to the fact that he had a prior and it's not the jury's not supposed to know right that he has a prior we had stipulated between the parties that the jury was not going to be told about that but a piece a piece of paper slipped through um, that made it in that made like a small reference to it and none of us had caught it we didn't catch it the prosecutors didn't catch it and it ended up being admitted as an exhibit and um i didn't know that this had happened i uh the reason i found out that this happened was because after we had sent the jury back they came back with a question and they said hey we noticed that during trial when you had this document up on the big screen we saw a notation that said dwi second but then we went and looked at the document it was redacted and we would like to know what does that mean and and Mm -hmm. so the the judge was like i'm sorry like i don't understand the question and the prosecutor spoke up and said well after we admitted it into evidence and we put it up on the screen we noticed and we tried to hide it and we hoped that they didn't notice and then later we grabbed the document and redacted it which is a huge problem mm-hmm. because that is a document that had been admitted into evidence and the prosecutor took it and altered it. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, they altered it because they were trying to be helpful for the to the defense. Right. But they still did that and they got in big trouble with the judge and then there was a mistrial. Oh. And so the, the trial stopped and then after that, there was this big fight between, I was not involved in the fight, but it was between the prosecutor that did it, his boss, my boss, 
and the judge there was just like this whole issue Mm -hmm. of like what do we do um and ultimately i think to avoid getting into like this to avoid having to deal with it they just dismissed the case so this so he got his case dismissed and he was essentially acquitted of dwi (laughs) we were just like okay um (laughs) So that's that story. Mm. Um, I don't know if it's it's what you were looking for, but but yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, kind of. Yeah. I remember. That's yeah, a pretty wild story. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Out of nowhere, we thought we we no, we were gonna lose that case, and then absolutely out of nowhere, that he ends up it gets dismissed, and he gets to keep his license, and he gets to keep his job, and it was a big deal for him, and. No. Right. Um, yeah, I just noticed that you uh, talked about, you talked to this client before, and you were also advising him before trial and so on, because I've heard of some cases where where the defendant has not met the counsel until the day before trial or something like that, which... You can say they they have counsel, but counsel is more. No, than... yeah, it, that's not true. Effective counsel, in any case, um, and actually, if you go look at the um, Powell v. Alabama, I believe it is. It's an old old case from the '30s. That was the issue there. That was the case that established um, before Gideon it established some of the parameters on when you get appointed counsel. That was a death penalty case. Um, And that's what had happened is these boys had been appointed counsel. They were given counsel, but it was on the eve of trial. And that was the argument that was made is that that's not effective counsel because I mean, he had asked for more time to prep for the case, but if you don't have counsel advising you throughout the entire stage of the, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be the entire stage of everything, but you have to have counsel for long enough that they can understand the facts of the case, what you're being accused of, look at the issues and be able to properly advise you on how to move forward and also to prep for a trial uh, if there's going to be one. So yes, I agree. You don't see it fortunately all that often anymore. Um, sometimes you will get judges that feel like clients are trying to delay cases. And so, um, you know, it, it usually comes up if a client fires their attorney and hires a new one right before trial. That's usually when it comes up these days and judges get real pissed when clients do that because they feel like it's a delay tactic. Um, But they usually will still grant the continuance anyway, um, because at the end of the day, it's not like you can question the client on why they fired their attorney or why their attorney fired them or because you can't really ask ask questions about attorney client communications. And so judges are kind of like, well, I'll give you, at least the judges I've experienced, they'll they'll give you the continuance because it's not worth risking getting reversed on appeal over it. But it really pisses them off because they think it's a delay tactic. And it, I, I don't think it is most of the time. Um, I mean, I guess it can be, but most of the time it's there's you're not going to take that risk and fire your attorney on the eve of trial unless there's a real issue. Right. Um, just, I have a question true. about appeals. Yeah. Um, how, 
So I know that um, like a writ of habeas corpus that's after a conviction. Um, yeah. And, and you just get one shot at a writ? So generally, yes. Generally, yes. And that is determined by statute. And so it'll depend on where you're at. So Texas has a, a, um, a subsequent writ statute that bars subsequent writs. Um, I, th I think that federal law has that too. I think most jurisdictions are going to have it, but I obviously haven't surveyed all jurisdictions, but it's a really common rule that you only get one. And that's what's called the subsequent writ bar, meaning you can't just keep filing writs. Every writ that you file, um, or if you're going to file one, put all your issues in it because this is your one shot. But there's generally exceptions made for certain circumstances. Um, the most common is going to be new evidence, but it has, you have to usually show that you could not have known about this and couldn't have found this evidence prior to this, to filing the subsequent writ. Um, and they'll, I mean, and that's sometimes a really hard obstacle to clear. Um, well, are there and other I know forms of appeals that they can also, use? yeah. So a, a habeas writ is technically not an appeal, Technically, okay. a habeas writ is a new proceeding, okay. and it's actually a civil proceeding, but only technically. What it is, is you filing a lawsuit against the government for holding somebody unconstitutionally. That's really what you're arguing when you're filing a writ, and it's what we call a collateral attack because it's not technically an appeal. It's a whole, like if you imagine, you know, this legal proceeding over in column A that is the actual criminal conviction and litigating whether or not a person is innocent or guilty. And then a writ is something, an, an appeal is in column A. It's you have the trial, then you appeal, then you appeal again, and you're going up the ladder in column A. And a writ is in an entirely new column. You file a writ over here, and the allegation is that what happened in column A was unconstitutional. And therefore you're seeking an order from this court um, which often is the same court, which makes it confusing. But you're seeking an order out of column B to vacate the conviction in column A. And so it's not, it's, that's why we call it a collateral attack because you're coming at it from the side. Um, but yes, I mean, you can have, you have what's called your direct appeal. So after your conviction, you get that first by right direct appeal. You'll get an, a, another discretionary appeal appeal to the higher court. And then from there, if you get heard and you don't get relief again, you can also appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court if there's a federal question that needs to be litigated there. You can then, then typically the next step is going to be your habeas, your state habeas proceedings. And then if those are all exhausted, you can then, if there's a federal question involved, file a second writ in federal court that's not the same thing as filing a second writ that's not going to be barred you're you have now column c we were going to an entirely different court and you're filing an entirely different writ if that makes sense makes perfect sense i don't know if i explained that well or not that's the <laughs> most clear explanation i have heard of that oh good, good. yeah yeah i was gonna say as well mm -hmm. yeah. I yeah. kind of understood writs and, and appeals before that, but that like mm -hmm. seriously cleared it up. So thank you yeah. for that. Yeah. To get into column C though, to get into federal court, you have to have a federal question, um, which is going to be usually 
constitutional violations, like Bill of Rights type stuff. Other than that, you're not going to be able to get into federal court. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please check back next week for part two. And if you haven't already, please subscribe so you can get notified of when our new episodes release and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Touch by Crime. Thanks, and we hope to see you again next week.